Welcome to another Discographer's Quarantine Short. Today, we'll be digging into another record that I find comforting with everything going on. The original soundtrack of Lord of the Rings, composed by Howard Shore. My connection to this music is definitely driven by my love of the movies and the books, but when I hear the score for these films, I am instantly transported back to a time when I was 12 years old, the world felt simpler, and I was about to be whisked away for the first time into an incredibly rich, vibrant world in which I would find much solace in the years to come. Lord of the Rings is a tale of cooperation, redemption, adversity, and triumph. And Howard Shore's score for these films tells that story in stunning detail and with unassailable creative strength. One of the strengths of this body of work is its melodic themes and the way that it develops them over the course of the series. These themes are very functionally similar to a musical device which arose from European operas in the 17th through 19th centuries, the leitmotif. It's an anglification of the German words for lead motive. A leitmotif is defined as a short, constantly recurring musical phrase associated with a particular person, place, or idea. Over the course of the series, Shore uses themes to signify all three of these options, so let's dig into some of them. Buckle your seatbelts, we're going to get into some deep, deep nerd shit here. The first theme I want to take a look at is the Rings theme, and its relationship to Sauron's theme and the Elves theme. We hear the ring theme in a delicate, dark tone during the title card of each film. You know, just to make sure you know what movies you're watching. But hear how it takes on a grand scale as the Fellowship passes by boat through the gates of the Argonath, and Aragorn is faced with a gigantic sculpture of his ancestor who succumbed to the power of the ring. When Frodo enters Mount Doom to attempt to destroy the ring, we hear this normally minor theme reharmonized in a more major, honestly Lydian scale, and it indicates hope, but with a lack of stability. Then we have the relationship to Sauron's theme. In the story, Sauron's life force is bound to the ring, and as such, his theme is similar, starting off with a half-step climb, then falling, albeit a bit differently. Then we have the theme of the elves, also starting with a half-step, but this time descending, sort of implying that the elves are the flip side of Sauron's coin. This makes sense in the lore of Middle-earth, where the elves are an ancient race, and Sauron was once one of the Maiar, another ancient race, but he had a Lucifer-esque fall from grace. The connection between these themes really displays Howard Shore's understanding and respect for the source material. For me, the catchiest theme of the bunch is the Shire theme. When first introduced, it conveys a rustic sense of innocence.
but we hear it take on a more repentant sound as Bilbo apologizes to Frodo that he is now carrying this burden. Then a melancholy tone as Frodo sends Sam away. And then an ethereal, reminiscent vibe on the slopes of Mount Doom as Sam and Frodo try to remember home. The Fellowship theme is one of the most memorable musical passages in the films, and it signifies the connection between the nine main adventurers who form the core of the story. See how it goes from an airy, hopeful tune at the formation of the Fellowship. To a sprightly action theme in the minds of Moria. to a dirge at Boromir's death, the breaking of the Fellowship. Each of these passages have more or less the same melody, but it's contextualized and orchestrated differently to tell us something about what is happening to our band of adventurers. This theme pops up roughly 8 trillion times during the series, but these are just some examples of how Shore reused the theme to great effect. Then we have a piece which reliably gets me all worked up, Rivendell. Listen to how it takes on a darker tone now as Elrond describes the failings of the race of men. The Isengard theme is particularly illuminating to its context in the story. It's in the 5-4 time signature, which is outside of a Western listener's comfortable expectations of groups of either 4 or 3. This helps to paint a dark picture of Saruman ripping up the forest and turning Orthanc into a mechanical fortress, upsetting the natural order of the world. The last theme I'd like to discuss is the Rohan theme. It definitely evokes emotion and an image of a proud people. But it takes on a fearful sound as the women and children of Rohan are awaiting an attack at Helm's Deep. And then a decidedly triumphant shout just before the Battle of Pelennor Fields. (music) 
All of these themes are extraordinarily evocative melodies, with notes deliberately chosen to elicit an emotional response in the audience. But the real magic here is the ways that Shore moved the melodies across the instruments and adjusted the harmonies to best suit the story at any given point. There is also a wonderful depth of constructed tradition in the practical or diegetic music within the films. That is, the music that exists within the universe of the story, which the characters can hear and are aware of. The first example is the instrumental song Flaming Red Hair, which plays during Bilbo's birthday party. It's a fun, folky number which feels familiar in structure and melody, but ever so slightly alien in its instrumentation. It honestly does a whole lot to anchor us in this world very early on in the story, in spite of its passing feature in the first film. Next we have The Road Goes Ever On, with lyrics plucked directly from the books, and a familiar sounding folky melody. It's sung by both Gandalf and Bilbo, giving us the impression that this is a common song amongst travelers and adventurers, adding some texture to the world. And then we have some Hobbit drinking songs, such as To the Bottle I Go. And the Green Dragon. You can kick your fancy ales, you can drink them by the dragon. Neither of which were composed by Shore, but they both go a long way to establish a sense of lore and culture within the story. Really, what's more relatable than a drinking song? Every culture has one. Or several. Then there's Billy Boyd's performance as Pippin singing The Edge of Night, a mournful tune in a Dorian scale with some truly Celtic bones. Through shadow, through the edge of night, until the stars are all alight. These songs go a step further than the score to establish an intense sense of realism within the story, working hand-in-hand -hand with the score to provide a lush musical landscape both inside and outside the universe of the story. The author of The Lord of the Rings was J.R.R. Tolkien. He was not an author by trade, but rather a philologist, one who studies language in historic contexts. This vocation led Tolkien to create a great many languages on his own, what are sometimes referred to as art languages or constructed languages. Lord of the Rings more or less became a sandbox for him to create the histories and cultures behind these languages. Linguist David Salo, along with the dialect coaches on the films, Andrew Jack and Roisin Carty, helped the actors implement Tolkien's languages in the film, but that contribution didn't stop with the dialogue. They also helped Shore incorporate elements or stand-ins of these languages into choral and solo vocal arrangements for the soundtrack. It's worth noting that Andrew Jack passed away due to COVID-19 at the end of March, so in his memory, let's take a look at some of his linguistic contributions to the score. Just about three hours after I finished recording this, uh, I saw the news that Ian Holm, the actor who had played Bilbo, had died. So, um, I guess this one's for him too.
Lyrics were furnished in the language of Adenaic, an ancient tongue of men, for scenes where the ringwraiths were present in the first film. This is a nod to the origins of the ringwraiths, nine former kings of men from ancient times corrupted by the power of the ring. The melodies and the sounds of the words used here seem to convey that strain and that corruption. The language of the people of Rohan is known as Rohirric, and for the purposes of the soundtrack, Old English was used as a stand-in based on the similarities in culture between Rohan and ancient England. In the score during the finale of the Minds of Moria scenes, a men's choir can be heard singing lyrics in an adaptation of Tolkien's Dwarvish language, Kuzdul. It provides a very ominous texture and a sense of the Dwarven culture, warlike and strong. Then the evil language of Mordor makes one appearance in the score, as best as I can tell. is harsh and brash and underlines an intense moment of betrayal from Saruman to Gandalf. These sounds are very strange and uncomfortable to English-speaking ears, and while perhaps that is playing to our latent xenophobia, it is extremely effective. There are two main elvish languages in the world of Tolkien. There's Quenya and Sindarin, the relationship between which is similar to that of Spanish and Italian. That is to say, they have a common linguistic ancestor, but they are distinct languages. They both feature heavily on the soundtracks, but Sindarin more so than literally any of the other languages mentioned. In the Council of Elrond scene, we actually hear Enya sing a passage in Sindarin, It's positively otherworldly. So with all of that being said, the amount of care and detail that went into these compositions is staggering. This is a set of soundtracks that you can really just turn on and get lost in. And sometimes escaping for a bit is a good thing to do for your health. And a musical world as engrossing as this is the perfect vehicle. So go listen to the soundtracks or, you know, just marathon the movies. I'm totally gonna and enjoy some time away from our wild world. Just make sure to check back in every once in a while. Now to take us out, let's go ahead and enjoy just a bit of the incomparable Annie Lennox singing the end credits song from the third film, Into the West. You 